Welcome to the More Equity Podcast by Harlem Capital. Harlem Capital is a diversity-focused, early-stage venture capital fund based in New York City. We're on a mission to invest in 1,000 diverse entrepreneurs over the next 20 years. In today's special episode, managing partner Henri-Pierre Jacques and Chief of Staff Tona Abaze talk about Harlem Capital's growing global footprint as we announce our first deals in Africa and Latin America. Hi, Henri. So great to be with you here today on the More Equity podcast. How's it going? Great. I mean, it's not often that we find ourselves in conversation between two Harlem Capital members, but with something like this, we felt like it was important to do a special episode. For those who are listening, what we're here to talk about today is Harlem Capital making its very first investments internationally, both in Africa and Latin America. The reason Henri is joining us here today, along with myself as chief of staff, is because Henri was the partner that led both of these deals. And as Harlem Capital is glowing global, we really just want to take a step back to talk a little bit about how we got to this point, what we've learned, and how we'll continue to build out the Harlem Capital International Investing Thesis. So with that, I think we can kick it off with just really understanding again, how did we get here? So Henri, when were you first personally interested in investing in Africa and Latin America? Yeah, and note, uh, Tona was also the, the investor on both of the, the deals in Africa and Latin America, which is why she's doing the interview. So I mean, for me personally, like I've always had a vision for Harlem Capital to be global. I think, you know, the mission for us is to change the face of entrepreneurship. And we fundamentally believe in diverse founders. And if you look at the globe, minorities are the majority globally. So I think the natural like evolution to me has always been, we should be a global firm that continues to attract the top diverse talent across the world. And I think even if you look at like demographics and growth rates, naturally all of that is happening outside the US. So I've always had that in my mind as a first generation Haitian American uh, to go abroad. And I think, you know, fun too, which we'll get into was kind of a natural inflection point where we could start to make some of those bets abroad. So it's interesting. I would say that investing in a new geography is a little bit different than investing in a new industry that you might not be familiar with, because inevitably you're investing in an ecosystem that you've never lived in, maybe you've never visited, and you don't know the culture as well. So in terms of Africa and Latin America, was there a person, event, or investment that introduced you to the ecosystem and made you more comfortable jumping into investing in that landscape? So I saw a lot of the data around Africa and LATAM, which have seen significant growth over the last three years from an investment perspective. Even in fund one, 15% of our deals that we sourced were international, even though we weren't doing international deals. Like we were getting deal flow from abroad already. So we knew that and that's increased over time, regardless of us investing there or not. And I think talking to a lot of my friends, particularly from business school who are from Africa or Latin America, uh, moved back home after business school. And so I've, I've had a number of friends, you know, one of my friends raised a series A in Colombia, another raised a large round in Africa. And so I've had, not had personal friends who are raising rounds in these countries and, and continents. So I think that that timeline has kind of naturally gotten me to the point where I was like, okay, we raised fund two. I now know people on the ground. I've seen the data of rounds getting larger, more dollars going to these markets. Let me take a closer look uh, and see if it's something that I want Harlem Capital to personally do and, and lead the charge. 
It's interesting to hear you talk about the way that a personal or even network connection really did help drive and motivate a lot of this, because at the end of the day, the information about Africa and Latin America and the capital that's going towards those geographies has been out there for years. And not every investor and certainly not every emerging manager is turning towards those geographies. So I would take a step back and ask, when did it become a serious consideration for Harlem Capital to start investing in emerging geographies. And as we're thinking about those first checks, what were some of the considerations you made around maybe how this would be different from the way that you invest domestically? Yeah, I mean, so we thought about it in fund one. I think as a first time fund manager, you you don't want to take a ton of risks, right? Because you want to make sure your LPs feel comfortable and safe with their capital. And then as we raised fund two, we, we tripled the fund size from 40 to 134. We knew we wanted to make more bets. So in fund one, we made 28 investments. In fund two, we're targeting 45. And so as we were starting to go through the fund model, the question became, okay, now we're ranking more bets, which naturally means we can take slightly more risk because we have more shots on goal, which is why we made that change. You know, where do we want to allocate those deals? Um, and as I did more research and, and Jerry and I kind of walked through the math together, you know, we, we both got comfortable that, hey, of, of 45 deals, like we feel like 10 to 15% abroad is a reasonable risk appetite and something that we should start to do because our goal is to be a multi-stage global firm. And so I think naturally, you know, whenever we look at any of the larger players, Sequoia, the TPGs, KKRs, the world, like they all have global offices and global funds. And so if you get to a certain point, you know, eventually you will get to that point. And so I think we're just thinking about the future and where we want to start and how we want to make those bets earlier than later. I think from like a risk management perspective, particularly in a post-COVID Zoom world, I think once you get comfortable that you have enough people on the ground, I don't see a ton of difference between being a coastal versus non-coastal bet. I think even within the US, you know, I think we like to bucket it, but like whether it's the politics, whether it's, you know, you can look at the differences in income, there are dramatic differences uh, within the US itself. If you talk about Alabama versus New York City. Uh, even though we like to group it. And so I think those customer target demographics are also very different. So I think, you know, generally we've kind of like created this broad like US and it's a safe haven because the number of reasons, taxes, the same dollar, currency, inflation, et cetera. Like there are a lot of nuances for customers in the US as well. And, and now we're, we're in a world where we're not meeting a majority of our founders before we invest. I'm not, you know, going to my founders offices on a quarterly basis. I didn't personally see a huge difference in risk profile if I can get comfortable with the market where my you know founder is whatever a 10 hour flight away versus a six hour flight to california or you know somewhere else and so i think that was something for me that i just haven't seen a huge difference even within our portfolio of 13 cities for our, our companies in the us one of the things you did mention is the role that a zoom in a more remote world played in this and i think throughout 2020 and 2021 we saw many venture capitalists talking about how their work got more efficient and even the diligence process got more efficient and it's interesting to see the parallels in the way that middle America and central part of the United States just saw so many founders finding venture capital more accessible to them because everything was happening over Zoom. And to see those parallels happening internationally, to see the ways that it's very clear that the Zoom environment and the remote environment can make people more comfortable with investing uh, across their borders. One of the things you also mentioned was research. And I can say that one of the things I appreciate about working with you is that you're very naturally curious. And that definitely comes across through your Twitter. Were there ways that you leveraged your Twitter and your network and your community to learn more about these environments and geographies in Latin America and Africa? Yeah, I just, I just asked the question. <laughs> I just tweeted, uh, you know, who are the people I should connect with? And I, I also did a post on LinkedIn. 
um, who are the people I should connect with in Africa and LATAM. Uh, definitely got more Africa posts uh, or responses just because even from a deal flow perspective, we see more deals from Africa and London um, than we did LATAM, but that's starting to change. And so I just got responses and then, you know, you get a lot of responses. So you have to cut through the noise. You can't talk to every single person who replies. You know, I think I got 300 comments across both my platforms. And what I typically do is I start to see who gets tagged multiple times or who is tagging the person. So I'd say usually if somebody gets tagged at least two or three times, then usually there's somebody who I, I know like is deeper in the network versus somebody posting once. And so just being mindful of that, I think even from a network perspective for others, like as you're looking to enter markets and figuring out the nodes, like whether it's me moving to Miami, I did the same thing here. Uh, you begin to realize like even though Africa is a continent and, and Latam is a region, there are two to five countries in each of those continents and regions that really generate 90% of the capital. And then within those two to five countries on uh, each of the regions, like there's going to be two to five or 10 organizations that probably see a large majority of the capital, given there's just not a lot of organizations there yet. And a lot of the dollars getting funded are still global companies or USVCs who are funding them. But like if people who are actually on the ground, it was pretty clear early on from my conversations and, and social media, like that there was a, a handful of people who really saw a ton of the deal flow across the, the countries I was interested in. It's great to hear you talk about your mechanisms for sifting out quality from the quantity, because obviously as venture capitalists, it's something that we see even within the domestic United States that you get a lot of inbounds and it's all about figuring out your filter to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. And that is true of emerging economies as well, that there are many founders who are coming up in these spaces looking to pitch venture capitalists. And a great way to put yourself on the map is to just be open and honest about the fact that you are interested in learning more about these spaces and hearing pitches. But that doesn't mean that you're not still going to have to do the work of really diligencing and finding the quality bets. That's a great segue to us talking about the investments that were actually made. Before we jump into the specific companies that we decided to partner with, I want to help our listeners understand the time horizon here. When did Harlem Capital make its first investment in Africa and Latin America? When did each investment close? And were you surprised with which one came before the other? Both investments actually closed in November, a week apart. And I did my post on Twitter, I want to say either July or August, which is when we started deploying Fund 2. So within four months, I think they happened faster than I expected. One of them, which I can start with first, is Parity, which is our, our Africa investment. I've actually known the founder, Yako, for eight years. We interned together at Bank of America and Investment Banking Group. And then he was in Brandon I's Bible study for a number of years as well. And so I actually had told him like years ago when we first raised Fund 1, like, hey, like at some point, like I'm going to invest in Africa. And like, you're going to be one of my first African investments, just because he's one of the few people who I knew on the continent. He moved to Africa five years ago. I knew he was super deep in the ecosystem. And so I wanted to back somebody in the market that I, I had trust with. Uh, and so it just happened to be, we started deploying fund two in July. Like he was raising a seed round in September. Uh, so timing worked out. It was really aligned and we did our process, you know, even though we knew each other, so it kind of went through the the formal process. And we got there and, and led the round in November and we're super excited with the people who came on, on board. For the audience, Parity is angel list for Africa. Basically, they're trying to help emerging markets, starting with Africa and then eventually going global, getting interested or getting connected to US and, and Western European venture capitalists. And they help you go through the process. They have an improvement score. And so it's one to hundred and basically proven that if your score is above a 75, based on their scoring mechanisms, you have this percentage chance of getting funding based on what they've seen. Uh, and to date, they've seen roughly 20% of all 
early stage rounds on the continent of Africa. So they have really good deal flow. And uh, that was another advantage, right? Like if I'm, I'm entering the market, one, obviously I, I like parity, I back the founder, back the company. Then like a secondary effect there is that given they're seeing one fifth of all deals in the continent, like I get to see that deal flow too, right? Or if I have questions about diligence or who should I talk to, Jacob and his team really know like who the players are on the continent. So it's also been a great access point for us to learn more about Africa. I think that's really important. Like every bet you make, um, like you obviously want to make money, but a lot of investors, like you have other reasons why you're making these investments. And so I think there was just, it was a cherry on top that I get to also learn more about the market after investing in this business as well. That was really exciting. There was so much in that response that I want to make sure that we pull it apart for our listeners in terms of one, obviously hearing that you sourced this deal through a personal connection and that helped you get conviction Two, you talking a little bit about the market and the way that it was important to you that you were working with a founder who knew the ecosystem really well, but also talking about this not just being a money bet, but also a strategic bet. I mean, we're in venture capital. Every business you hope is going to be the one that helps return the fund. But specifically with Parity, it was about really opening us to the ecosystem to be able to support a player that is ultimately going to go on to support other founders and help increase the amount of funding and capital and quality startups that are coming out of Africa. But also, again, really helping us to be able to continue to learn and get access to deal flow. So for our listeners, whether you are a founder, whether you are a venture capitalist, it's important for you to be thinking when you're entering those new geographies and you're making that first bet, is there some other value that this investment can give you outside of just the capital and the hopeful return? One of the things I want to ask you and maybe applying it to parity and taking a step back as we look at other Africa investments, Harlem Capital is known for having our investment box. We think about a couple of attributes, whether it be market, business, founder. And I want to ask you, when you're thinking about bets in Africa specifically and seeking to get conviction, what are a couple of the things in diligence that you walk through? And maybe are there nuances that you apply to international deals that are a little bit different from domestic deals as you think about our HCP box? Yeah, so the box, um, founder market business ownership, it's kind of the HCP box. I would say founder perspective, the same. You know, we're, we're looking for the best founders. We typically invest in 1.5 to 1% of founders that we see. From a market perspective, we obviously don't live in the regions. And so like we, we need to talk to a lot of people. And so I've, I've been focused on getting to know as many people in, in the regions as possible to learn what are the nuances, you know, focusing on Africa, you know, first, like you look at Nigeria, that's probably got the most uh, VC capital for a number of reasons, but one of them being that the market is large enough where you don't need to expand to other countries to be a unicorn uh, versus the reality is if you're in Kenya, like you can maybe be a unicorn, but you probably need to at least expand to East Africa just based on like population uh, and GDP growth. And so like those are things we think about and like, what does that mean? Like, why do we believe that this business can be in multiple countries? And you know, what are the nuances from a cultural perspective? What are the languages? Who are the competitors? And so we do as much of that as we can. Obviously you, you have to be comfortable knowing like what you won't know, just not being from the region. From a business perspective, I would say generally for any deal we do in Africa or Latin, you probably have to have more traction. Uh, not to say that we're less risk appetite, but I think it's just like if you look at how long the funding takes has taken in the past for these companies, they traditionally have had more traction before getting funding. So a pre-revenue startup in the U.S. can get funded much quicker, you know, with, after the seed round than probably a pre-revenue startup in Africa or Latin, at least to date from what we've seen. And so being aware of like those nuances that there's less downstream capital. 
uh, and the, the Series A or Series B funds probably have a higher bar. And so that's something. And I would say lastly, from an ownership perspective, typically we target 10% ownership in the U.S. Abroad, both of our deals so far were 12.5%. So there is slightly more risk because there is less downstream capital. And ultimately, as a seed stage investor, like your business is only as good as it can survive and capital is required because these businesses aren't profitable. Uh, so we do feel like we're taking more risk. And so for that bigger risk, like we want more ownership, which one means that we don't need as large of an exit to return the same amount of capital. And so that's something that we've thought about. But at the same time, we're not trying to go from 10% to 20% because I think we still are founder friendly and we still want to be aligned with the founders and not, you know, what we've heard to date, a lot of some of the founders in Africa in particular felt like a lot of the investors are taking advantage of them for relatively small dollars. And I saw that even on the parity deal with some of the terms that other investors wanted. And I think that's just not a great long-term partnership that we're looking to build with our founders. What's exciting to hear is the way that the Harlem Capital philosophy and investment thesis is really just being extended and applied to new geographies. And whether you are an angel investor, whether you are an emerging VC or a GP at a fund, it's interesting as you enter these ecosystems to think about how am I staying true to my core? How am I staying true to the things that give me conviction and really just applying it to a new context? And where do I need to appreciate the nuance of this new economy and shift a little bit? So it's great to hear about that connection. I loved one of the things you mentioned, which is that we do tend to be a little heavy on the market research. I know for this next deal we're about to talk about, we did customer intros actually in a different language to be able to get conviction. So I want to walk us through the story of Harlem Capital's first investment in Latin America, which was Turbodega. Can you start with telling us about what Turbodega is and how the deal was sourced? Yeah, so Turbodega, the goal is for them to be the POS system for bodegas in Latin America. Currently, they are in 225,000 bodegas in Peru and in Mexico. And so if you think about just the Latin American market, 80% of food sales are estimated to be done in bodegas, not grocery stores or restaurants. So this is really important just for way of life. And as somebody who lived in Harlem for for eight years, like I saw like the bodega impact even for my personal life when you're living in food deserts uh, compared to the grocery stores. So I kind of personally felt the issue. Got introduced to them through Kali Capital, who's a friend of the firm. Daniel, who's uh, the CEO of Turbodega, used to work there. And um, so they were the first check. And then also 2048 BC, which is also a friend of the firm, led the pre-seed round. Uh, and so we knew them. So two of the two of the pre-seed investors we've known pretty well and got a lot of great reviews from them. Uh, and then, you know, did our work. Uh, and so, as you mentioned, we did customer calls. And, and luckily, one of our interns, Elizabeth, also spoke Spanish. And so they led the customer calls uh, with some of the, the clients in, in Mexico and in Peru. And then we just kind of saw the trends, right? There's a couple other competitors. So we saw that like there was money getting funded to competitors in different countries, but not in the ones that they were tackling. And so uh, it was really clear from a market perspective, like other investors were paying attention and we felt confident from a downstream capital perspective, there would be capital. And then, you know, to the point of traction, the business has grown dramatically in, in, in the past year. And so I think their traction really spoke volumes and, and the team was super strong. I think what was most memorable to me about this deal was two things. First of all, 
we did see a lot of the movement. And I know you mentioned Chipper and also Frubana. Lightspeed had put out a great page and a great um, article kind of about their approach to investing in Latin America. Tiger Global had also recently had some traction in the space and had started backing companies. So I think it's great to be able to take a step back. And when you look at companies and firms like SoftBank also taking a keen eye to the space, being able to let that be a signal for the team. But I think also something that was really interesting here is that for our team, we really had to take ourselves out of our personal experience. Because if you were to explain to us in the United States where we do Instacart and Amazon Fresh and we shop at Whole Foods or we're going to our regular supermarket, it's a little harder for us to imagine having to sit down and think of the way that bodegas play a role in the ecosystem. So I think that, to be honest, there was a moment where I remember on a call that our team, we really checked our privilege and we said, this may not make intuitive sense to us why bodegas are the heartbeat of the e-commerce mobilization in Latin America, but it was really great for us to take a step back and say, we have to start thinking about it from the customer perspective, from the distributor perspective. And I think that's why here references with customers and with distributors and with people on the ground really was impactful to all the VCs and the founders. Definitely make sure that you know who you're talking to and you may have to bring them up to date on your culture or your ecosystem or your market, but really making sure that you recognize that not everybody's going to get it just from their personal experience when they are investing in a new economy. So I want to take a little bit of time to talk about what we learned throughout the diligence process. We did talk about the fact that we don't change too much of our Harlem capital diligence process, but there may be a few differences. So can you talk a little bit about where you do see those nuances between international investments and some of the investments that we do domestically? Yeah, I think we hit on most of them for the box. I'd say the only difference is, you know, we are agnostic, but when it comes to international, we're, we're being a little bit more tailored. So largely for Africa and Latin, we're only doing fintech which in, includes Crypto Web 3 uh, and also e-commerce enablement tools. So I would say those are the two main sectors. And then also if in those markets, we're being more specific about what countries we target, one, because of where the dollars are going and two, because where we built relationships. So in Africa, to date, I've largely only been focused on Nigeria and Kenya. And then Latin America, to date, have largely been focused on uh, Mexico, Colombia, Peru, uh, and some Brazil, but, but largely those three. And so I just like we're, we're being pretty intentional and starting over time as we get deeper relationships, you know, have more products in the market that we can kind of back and, and see more on the ground, like we can start to flex that, but that's something that takes time. And so just being really intentional about where we start uh, geographically and market-wise in the markets because they're, they're large and very nuanced. And one of the things I want to highlight is that this is Harlem Capital's current perspective for Fund 2, but that obviously evolved from how we thought about Fund 1, and it'll continue to evolve not only as our network deepens, but also as fund sizes hopefully grow. So there is that discrepancy with when you're looking to get investment from a fund's just general fund versus when you start to see funds break out to have global funds or opportunity funds where there may be a lower bar because there's a larger allocation that they're expecting to give to opportunistic bets like an emerging economy. So always something to think about as a founder, um, which fund you are pitching to and where they are in their investment cycle. And that makes a great segue to, we get a lot of pitches from a lot of founders in these geographies and I want to speak to them What's some advice that you would give to founders in Africa and Latin America who are looking to pitch U.S.-based VCs? Yeah, I think, you know, look through the crunch base and see what companies they've invested in already. I don't think you want to spend too much time trying to convince VCs 
on why they shouldn't invest in you in you know LATAM or Africa. That's not the best use of time. The reality is, is traction, as I mentioned, will likely matter more in those markets. Um, and so like just being aware of like where you are from a traction perspective. And I would say lastly, the other nuance is we to date have only invested in US entities. And so even if you're based in uh, LATAM or Africa, a lot of the companies are Delaware C Corps, just from like a tax perspective for us. And so, you know, be mindful if you're not a Delaware C Corp, that like that can be a barrier for U.S. investors unless they truly have deep, abroad companies that they're investing in. Well, I think it's great to talk to the founders, but obviously founders have to be matched with capital on the other side. And I do think that while it definitely makes sense for Harlem Capital and our mission that we would have an inclination towards Africa and LATAM, for other GPs of other funds, it may not be something that's so such a natural extension of the work that they're doing. So as you think about other GPs, whether they're emerging managers or more seasoned managers, what's some advice that you would give from the perspective of when you were first jumping in and also when you look to learn more? I think the first thing is figuring out who those nodes are in the markets that you are interested in. So whether that's you using your social media platforms or LinkedIn and scrubbing, but like really just find out who are the key people and you know, after every call I get off of with somebody in these markets, I always ask them, like, who are like the must two or three people that you think I have to speak to? You know, a big difference for what I've seen, at least in Africa, for sure, has been people use WhatsApp a lot. And um, so a lot of my introductions have come through WhatsApp. And we just kind of talk through that versus like the email, uh, which get cluttered. So just like learn those nuances and, and figure out who the nodes are. Um, and I would just say, like, you know, figure out like what your risk appetite is. I think in a remote world, I've found us to take more risks, which I'm glad because I think that's the game of venture. And I think there is a belief that if you met somebody for an hour or if you lived in their city, that like there's there's some comfort around that, but I don't think it really fundamentally changes anything. You know, I, I've now invested in two Miami companies and I definitely will see those founders more frequently than my founders in New York. But like, I'm not, you know, I'm not seeing these founders on like a monthly basis. Uh, everybody's busy. You know, I have multiple founders, they have multiple investors, like we all have our own personal lives as well. And so I think before there was like this belief that that was some comfort basis, but I just don't think in reality, like it really changes that much. And so I would just say like for GPs thinking about it, like just really evaluate the differences. And some people are more hands-on and some people do like to only invest in companies, you know, within like a one or two hour flight and that's fine. But if that's not you and you are more dispersed, I don't think it's a huge difference to, to go this way. We love to hear it. I mean, I'm a firm believer that talent and potential is spread out around the world. It's not just concentrated in the Western world or even developed economies. So I do think really accepting that successful founders can be found everywhere. And I do agree that while Harlem Capital isn't so much focused on the in real life component of the diligence process, we do think a lot about the synergies that we get from meeting our founders in person. And I think it helps that as Harlem Capital, we take quarterly retreats to different cities and soon we will be taking a quarterly retreat internationally. And also that we have our founders retreat where we meet with our founders every year in one location, regardless of where they're from and bring everyone out. So there is still that ability to be able to connect with your founders in person to build that connection and that charisma after you've invested in them. And we definitely see the benefits of doing that. Super excited. Harlem Capital coming to Mexico City very, very soon. And I think we'll even have more learnings from that trip when we actually do get to be on the ground. And as our resident African, I will definitely be making sure that Africa is the next international trip we're making. I mean, we've had a great time talking about how we got to making international investments, the investments we made, and also what we learned on the way. 
So now I really just want to take a beat and say, where do we go from here? Where do we, how do we dream? How do we make sure that these aren't our only investments in Latin America? And how do we see this trajectory really shaping the future of Harlem Capital? Obviously, we both know very well that the mission of Harlem Capital is rooted in diversity. I'd love to hear you talk about how that concept of diversity has applied in Latin America and Africa and how you view Harlem Capital's ability to contribute to those ecosystems. Yeah, so, you know, obviously our core focus is Black and Latino people and then women of all races. And so that's naturally why we went to Africa and Latin next for markets. And, you know, what I've seen to date is probably three core things. I think first, uh, you know, in fund one, 45 or 46% of our fund was woman-led companies. And so the first obvious thing that I've seen in Africa and Latin is that there are dramatically more male-led companies than, than female-led companies. I think there's a number of reasons for that, you know, largely, obviously, patriarchal systems that Harlem Capital will not change in, in any near term. Um, and so I think just being conscious of that, right, and, and, you know, to that point, both of our first deals in, in the markets were male-led. And so I'm being very aware of that and, and what that means. And I haven't seen a ton of woman-led companies to date in those markets. And so I've been pretty intentional about asking people for that. So that's something I'll continue to watch over time. Also noticing, particularly in Africa, that there are a lot of Africa startups that get funded that are not African-led. And so being very intentional, like, you know, are these founders from Africa? Are they actually Black and people of color versus maybe in other markets, two of the top markets in Africa or South Africa and Egypt? And so just thinking through that, like from a race, gender, who are the, who are the true minorities in Africa and what does it mean to actually back an African startup that's diverse? Because really, we chose diversity as a lens because we were trying to target underrepresented founders. And I would say that, you know, on the flip side in LATAM, the other one for the third part is, you know, there's a race disparity within Latin America. And I see it, I live in Miami now, uh, in terms of who are white looking Hispanics versus darker skinned Hispanics or Latins. Uh, and so being very intentional about that, like, are we actually getting the minorities in Latin America? Because obviously the entire region of Latin America is Latin, but like, who are the minorities in that and like in those regions that we should be targeting? So, you know, trying to be conscious of it, I think it takes time to learn it. These are you know, institutional systems, you know, there's, there's, whether it's racism or, you know, racism in Latin America or sexism in Africa, like these are century old things that we're not going to change in the near term. But just being aware of like what those institutional barriers are and like Harlem Capital existed because of the institutional barriers in the U.S. And so we're trying to figure out like what those institutional barriers are in those, in those regions and then trying to be intentional about it. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, uh, but at least being aware and trying to like make a difference where we can. Absolutely. I loved your call outs just on the racial and cultural nuances. I think it's very similar to the United States, where as an investor, I personally believe it's your responsibility if you're going to interact with diverse community and diverse founders to educate yourself and also make sure that you're aware of the challenges in these communities, of the history in these communities, especially as they pertain to race and culture. I think it's really important that you're not making assumptions. So it's interesting to hear you talk about that disparity of being white presenting versus not, of the culture and the history of also what's happened in South Africa and the apartheid. Because at the end of the day, when you're supporting founders, you're supporting them as a whole person. When you're supporting a market, you're supporting where that market is come from in their history. And part of risk management is being aware of the forces that are at play that you are inherently becoming a part of when you choose to invest in a company that's based in that geography. So I thought that was a wonderful call out. And it's also really important to say that 
we are going to be intentional and we are always seeking to be curious, but we don't know everything. And that's why we continue to talk to our founders. We learn so much through the founders that we back and we learn so much through our network. So it'll always be something that we will continually be growing in and learning and applying to our investment thesis. And then lastly, I know you talked about the way that Harlem Capital can contribute. And we never think that we're gonna be able to save the world or change everything because Rome wasn't built in a day. But I do think one of the areas that Harlem Capital has been very intentional about contributing is thought leadership and data. And when we notice something in terms of an anecdotal observation or a pattern, we start to say, okay, how can we collect data about it? And when it comes to the gender discrepancy, both in Africa and Latin America, I do think we're very, very excited to be putting together reports in the future that focus on specifically women who are founders in Africa and women who are founders in Latin America and understanding who these people are, how successful they've been, and how we can put a spotlight on these communities to hopefully drive more action and attention to these people. So really excited for some upcoming data reports from Harlem Capital. Excited to see what you and Gabby put together. <laughs> Absolutely. Gabby, the principal of our firm, is definitely leading the charge on Latin America. Nicole, our senior associate, as our head of data and insights, is always pushing us on how we can make sure that we're digging into the right problems, answering the right questions, and really getting some great conclusions from the data, and then obviously sharing that with the entire market, and hopefully people benefit from it as much as we do. I want to wrap up with basically asking, what's the future for us, for Harlem Capital investing internationally, especially in Latin America and Africa? What do you see as the future? What does success look like? And how are you thinking about how we take steps towards that? Yeah, I mean, so I think the immediate future is, you know, we'll be deploying fund two until likely end of 2023. And in that time period, you know, roughly want to make four to six investments across uh, both the regions total. So probably three in Africa, three in Latin America, right? To, to dip our toe and, and get a taste of, of what we see. And then you know, as we raise fund three, uh, we'll reassess, right? And did those companies, do they see traction? Um, are they getting markups? Do we feel like we, you know, have an understanding and then we'll kind of go from there. I think, you know, my vision is that those will go well and we raise a larger fund three, like we'll continue to, to double down. But I think not ever losing sight of like, we live in the US, this is where most of us are from. And so like, we're not going to like lose sight of the discrepancies and diverse founders that are here in the US. But I think at the same time, like the firm was built off of taking risk and off of making bets that other people didn't see. And, you know, in fund one, the, the number one question we got was, are there enough diverse women founders in the U.S. for you to back, right? In a pre-George Floyd era, there was a, a lot of uh, questions around like our thesis statement and whether or not there was a large enough market. And obviously now there's dozens of funds who are targeting diverse founders in the U.S. Like that wasn't the case six years ago when we started the firm. Um, and so I think the same will be true in Latin and Africa. Like we're going to get the same questions and, you know, similar skepticism and, is it focused? Uh, but that doesn't really scare me or, or the firm. It's, you know, how the firm started and we'll continue to kind of push the boundaries for what LPs and what other VCs and other founders think uh, makes sense. And, you know, that that excites me. I got an adventure because I want to take risks and we're targeting this market because we're extremely passionate about it. And, you know, I think as an immigrant and you're an immigrant, like I think there are other people globally who can benefit from what we're doing. And I think we can still make money while we're doing it. Well, Henri, I think you've brought us to a perfect closing. I can definitely say two immigrants getting together. It's been amazing to be on these deals with you, both Parity and Turbodega. One of the things about Harlem Capital is we not only live our mission, but we share our mission with the world. And it's often the way that we learn best. 
So to the listeners out there, whether you're a founder, whether you're a investor, whether you're an operator in these spaces, tweet us your questions, tweet us the things that you want us to know, share your perspectives, because ultimately we are open ears. We really want to make sure that we are continuing to learn from the ecosystem, from the people who directly live in these spaces. So we're excited. This is just the beginning of Harlem Capital going global and investing internationally, but it certainly won't be the end. And if there's more questions, we'll come back for another episode. Thanks so much for joining us today, Henri. Thanks, Sarah.